Welcome back to The Design Podcast. I'm Ashton Snook, and this is the show where we connect you with the creators and makers behind some of today's best-known brands and products. In this episode, we're joined by William Stewart. Will is a multi-award-winning industrial design director at The Fuse Project. In his career, he's worked on everything from health tech to airlines, wellness and robotics. And what we would probably recognize most is his work in the consumer IoT space, including August Lock and Hive with the indoor and outdoor camera. Let's get into the conversation. Hello. Hello, how's it going? I'm very good, Ash. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Good to be here. It sounds very professional already. Good way to start. <laughs> um, we want to keep it casual. Yeah, keep it really casual. So, I mean, as, as you and I were speaking about before, there's, there's so much we can, we can cover. Um, but I thought a great place would be to start, was, you know, particularly for designers in Britain who, who look at all these different agencies like Pentagram and uh, Ammunition and, of course, The Fuse, to talk about how, as a, you know, as a British designer, you, you made the transition from working in the UK to San Francisco um, and then working in, you know, the world-renowned Fuse project and, and quite close with uh, Yves Bahar. Um, so maybe is that an area we could, we could dive into? Sure, yeah. I can give a, a little bit of a flavor of that. So I worked for maybe eight to 10 years in the UK. I worked in consultancy basically my entire career up until now. And um, around about the time that we came out to San Francisco, um, my wife and I were just kind of looking for a little bit of a change of scenery. We'd been in London for a while. Um, and the UK design industry has a, a great country, culture, really great people, um, some great consultancies. Um, but we've always kind of been drawn to technology and that kind of startup culture that is very prevalent out here in the Bay. Um, and the Bay is kind of known for its, it's kind of the epicenter of design firsts. So it was something that we were definitely drawn towards and the kind of the aspirational culture that they have here with regard to developing and designing um, new ideas. And there's just kind of a a really nice optimism here. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that in the UK, the design industry has, is is pessimistic by any way, but (laughs) definitely a kind of uh, a an enthusiasm to create something new and and interesting and we were very much drawn to that so in 2013 i think i came out here f- for a, a week just to kind of because i'd never been out to san francisco before mm. and i just wanted to get a sense of uh, the area whether or not it's a place that i'd really be happy living long term and at the same time i i kind of cold called a little bit on a couple of agencies and asked to sort of come in and say, I'm here for a week and I'd love to come and show my work and uh, kind of in with the prospect of um, them maybe having a job. So I spent a week doing that. Um, and then over the course of the following couple of months, following that conversations ensued and, and Fuse was one of the agencies that sort of took an interest and had a, an opening for me. So then in, in January of 2014, that's where we, we made the jump and um, kind of leap of faith almost. Um, and I think we weren't sort of completely committed necessarily to staying out here long term at that point. I think we thought we'd, we'd give it a go and just see how it, 
panned out, but uh, it, it kind of stuck. And we, we love the area. We love everything that the Bay has to offer from the nature and the, the, the access to really you know, amazing hiking trails. It's, it's one of the, f- the few places that you can surf and ski in the same day, which is kind of living the dream. Kind of, you have to pinch yourself every yeah. now and then thinking that you can do that. Um, and yeah, and, and Fuse has been my, my professional home ever since. Well, yeah, I mean, San Fran has been, I mean, again, for a lot of, I talk more for British designers because I can't talk for international, but it somewhat feels like the pinnacle from the outside in of, of the creative sort of summit of, of design. Obviously, there's so many great studios over there. And then you know, from the lifestyle point of view, I mean, surfing and skiing in the same day um, is awesome. I've been to San Fran once when I was two. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you don't remember it too much oh no yeah golden gates they were amazing the restaurants were great um yeah i have no i have no idea it's been on my to-do list for for such a long time to come over and and uh and visit the different studios and see the city and get out um up into up into the country but yeah i was gonna do it last year but you know obviously world events yeah. change uh change plans yeah absolutely kind of put everyone on hold a little bit with their travel plans for sure yeah so this so when you when you when you you know you did a bit of cold calling you went into the fuse was that you know a very informal introduction did you go in there with the idea to to pitch yourself and and, and share a portfolio was it just a simple meet and greet and and kind of see how things would roll i had a i had a portfolio ready you know it was it was a meet and greet and kind of i i i went with an open mind thinking that it was just going to be a, a conversation with me being a designer and then being a, a design agency. And hopefully if a relationship could be built, then, um, you know, if, if, and if that can be nurtured over time, then that might grow into a position in the future. But, um, luckily, uh, uh, they had something available right there and then, and, you know, I took them through my, my work that I had, had done up until that point and, and, uh, they seem interested luckily. So, <laughs> um, so it was, it's it was definitely a case of right place right time um i think there's also something to be said when people are looking for designers that there's, maybe there's a project happening at that point in time which which has some synergy with your portfolio and um you know you, you just have to be the good a good fit right um mm-hmm. and i think at that point they had a couple of programs going on um that kind of felt like I could slot into that relatively seam- seamlessly. Um, and also, you know, there was, there was no sort of visa issues at that point. So it was kind of a good, a good, a good decision for both on their part and, 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 on my, and a good fit from my point of view as well at that point. Yeah. Doors opened and then, and then, in, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So when you, when you started, were you in the, in the role that you're in now as a, as a design director of you? Did you move up into that position over, over the years since, since you joined the team? So I started off in a senior position uh, and sort of slowly transitioned into design director that I am now. Um, but right at the very beginning, it was very purely sort of craft focused. Mm. I was very much focused on um, the design execution and you know, focusing on whatever project that I was working on at the time. Uh, and working with the various teams that we have in the studio, you know, we have a large, not just industrial design team, but strategy, UX design, brand, 
Um, and so my day-to-day was very much uh, on collaborating with those disciplines, with whatever, with, you know, either a combination of or um, all of those disciplines at the same time. Um, so I'd say 90% of my day, if not 100% in, in a lot of cases, was on the design execution side. Um, and then gradually over time, um, you kind of grow into, I grew into more of having a, more of a leadership position in the studio um, from the point of view of helping to guide the team more broadly um, mm-hmm. and managing a, a, a group of designers. We have about 20 to 25 designers on the industrial design team right now. Wow. Um, so it's, it's, it's pretty sizable from, from an ID point of view. But then in the entire studio, we have um, somewhere in the realm of about 75, 80 people across the entire studio. From a, so from an agency point of view, we're actually pretty big. Um, oh, yeah. But we managed to maintain more of a, a small studio vibe and kind of feel. And I think that comes from having Eve, very, Eve, our founder, very closely um, connected with all of the projects. So, uh, and, and sort of managing and, and making sure that we're maintaining the quality across all of our output, which is something sometimes can be lost as your studio gets, gets bigger and bigger. You know, if you have a, a studio of 300 people, it's uh, a little harder to maintain sort of consistency, I would have thought. Um, not having worked in a studio of that size before, but it's my, uh, w- what, what I seem to get the impression of, sure. I, th- I think you're right. I mean, I, the biggest team I've managed is about 15 people. Yeah. And that was, you know, even on the digital side, a bit more of a challenge to get everyone to, to conform and share ideas and keep that consistency. So team of yeah. 2025 and still doing, doing that is, um, yeah, that's pretty impressive. From a Fuse point of view, there's a couple of things to dive into here, but and, you know, forgive me if this is going the wrong, wrong track, but one of the things that's always fascinating about Fuse, and I've been a big fan of uh, Eve and, and the portfolio that the, the company and studios outputted for the last decade plus, what does that relationship look like as a design director for you working with, 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 with your team and with Eve? Is, is, it somewhat, uh, is he almost somewhat like a super director that's coming along and helping you guys critique and assess the work and... Uh, and, and look at the problems. He's still very connected with all the programs that we work on, um, but ultimately, he has the you know the the executive decision making power when it comes to what direction we go in. Um, and he'll come in at certain points and and look at our approach and you know with kind of fresh eyes, which I think is important. Um, for for any studio or any project you need somebody to come in with um a fresh perspective and he has the benefit of you know the the many many years of experience that he's had working with a a vast uh, a wide array of of brands and and companies so he has a kind of a a very holistic perspective that he can look at um our ideas and and our work from so it's yeah, I, I think you're right in calling him sort of a, the, the, giving him the super director title. <laughs> um, but yeah, and, and I, I, you know, we, we have reviews with him um, often on a daily basis when we're working on projects. So it's not like he's, you know, a peripheral member of the team in any way. He's definitely a, 
a core member of any project that we're working on. We treat him the same way as any other colleague who's uh, working with us in the studio. That's cool. That's cool. I don't know if super director. <laughs> yeah. I'll pitch it to him. See what he there thinks. I'll pitch it to him. See what he thinks. Yeah. <laughs> Gosh. I get a tweet or something. Super director. Interesting term. Um, cool. And in terms of your role as a design director, and this is something I've, I think is really interesting for uh, those in the community who are on the digital side of product design. Mm-hmm. There's a bit of a blurred line in my experience and a lot of conversations I have um, with you know heads of design and design directors and and what those roles for actually look like and what the responsibilities are. Mm-hmm. I think it'd be interesting to kind of dive into that. So you know, as a design director and in, in at the Fuse, what does what does that really mean for for your role? What what are what are the key things that you're focusing on um, in that position? I think it it depends, um, and I can talk from me personally, but I think people take different paths depending on what their interests are. And, I, and I'll reference what uh, Gardy said in your, in your um, previous podcast with him and what, what he said about leadership who grow into these um, manager positions. There's, there's an irony that you've got to that position because you're really good at what you do and you've persisted with it, you've developed your craft, you've honed your craft but then you grow into these positions where you're no longer exercising it in any way, mm. um, but you're kind of helping to guide people through a lens of your knowledge of, of how craft should be kind of carried out. But from my own personal perspective, I kind of take pride in being able to stay very connected to the craft. So it doesn't matter what I'm working on, I still like to be sketching ideating and in many cases you know um developing cad models um as proof of concept and even you know, getting very deep in with the factory to work through technical solutions and feasibility and that's what i love about design and that's why i became a designer working with those constraints and working with the context of whatever project it is that we're working on at the time, that's what I find um, really motivating and, and mm. interesting. Um, but in terms of the day-to-day role of a director, there's a lot of, from my point of view, there's a lot of collaboration. So we do a lot of sketch sessions, brainstorming. That's definitely an, insen- an essential part of our process, having brains sort of in the room um, to be able to yield better solutions, um, mm. which I think has been a challenge, certainly during COVID, you know, because we're n- not in the same room together and we're having to do everything right. virtually. Um, and I don't think you can replace that in-person collaboration where you're bouncing ideas off of each other, building off of each other, saying, yes, and what about this? and sketching something up on the wall, sketching something on a piece of paper where I think virtually you can maintain some level of that um, character of, of brainstorming and collaboration, but some of it is lost. I mean, it's proved that we can do it, proved that we can be effective mm. to a degree. 
Um, but I think once we're eventually allowed, and it seems like we're starting to open up here in San Francisco a little bit more, um, they're allowing people back into the studio now officially from, from the city's perspective. So that's a great thing to hear. Um, <clears throat> it would be good to start doing that again, for sure. What is it about the, um, what is it about that sort of physical collaboration that you think is missing in the virtual world? Is it, is it the tools? Is it, is it the room? Is it the atmosphere and energy you get from others that you can't replicate virtually? Yeah, I think it's often it's not even what's said. It's even, you know, body language and describing something with your hands and like feeling and touching things. And especially when you're working in the realm of physical product design, you really need to have that physical, tangible element. Otherwise, it, it's very hard mm. for it to be relatable and to understand whether or not it's the right direction to go or not, or whether you need to go off in another direction. Um, and I think it's just, you know, body language and, you know, standing at a whiteboard and sketching there and then having someone stand next to you and they grab the pen off of you and then they start sketching something, building off of your idea. <laughs> and, it, and, and there's, there's tools that you can use virtually, like Miro we've been using a lot of. Miro has been an, an incredible um, virtual tool for whiteboarding and um, building on all of our ideas. And in many ways, it's actually, so I'm kind of going to contradict what I've been saying. In many ways, it is actually better <laughs> in the sense that a physical whiteboard is only in one place. You only have, you, if you want to sketch on that project, it's, in that one place in the studio. Whereas Miro, it's on your phone, it's on your laptop, it's on your iPad, it's yeah. wherever you want to be. So you can be walking down the street, grabbing a coffee and you're like, oh, I haven't got, I've got this idea. And you just put a sticky note mm -hmm. on there, like from your phone. It's, it's being organic and capturing ideas like that um, from an individual perspective is definitely mm -hmm. improved through those virtual tools. Um, but when you're collaborating and building off of one another's ideas, I think, I definitely think in, in person is better. I don't know how you found it with, um, your role at Vodafone, but that's certainly how I found it. Yeah, it's a really good question. It's, um, so when, when, at my previous role, when I was, when I was looking after design at Hive, we, um, we obviously had to go into the same, you know, quickly down tools next week next the next monday morning you're working remotely and we were very much a um come in every day studio uh, environment very small studio but it was really about that uh, you know we, the desk bank was built in a certain way we had whiteboards completely surrounding our our space it was all around to encourage and you know get people to share ideas and doodle and, and collaborate and you know, I, I, you know honestly i was really concerned that it was going to tank the entire thing um now you know luckily because I think everyone was forced into the same constraint of working remotely, it kind of played out okay. Mm -hmm. But we were in a position where we had a very mature, very senior design team. We had actually just taken on two new lead designers, but again, because they were quite senior, I think they were able to adapt um, to that. If we had more junior members, or uh, we had grads working with us in the studio uh, at that time, I think it would have been really hard for them and for us to be able to mentor them in the right way. Um, yeah. We, I think we, we muddled on okay, I would say, in 2020. Moving into, you know, to Vodafone Smart Tech, the whole, my whole, whole experience has been remote. I mean, I visited the office 
once for a casual thing, completely disconnected from <laughs> from my now now role uh, a long time ago. Um, but in terms of how we work, it's not been so bad. We've been you know utilizing Miro as well. We moved over to Figma, um, which is a great great uh, call from from Tom. You know our mutual uh, friend, mm-hmm. and it you know we we're rapidly collaborating on lots of projects on a daily basis. There is something that's missing around the tangibility as well, and it's less so around generating ideas, and arguably probably less tangible than you know when we're like trying to understand if something feels right, if it's got the right weight, the right texture. Because um, you know we focus on digital in my in my team, but I feel there's a little bit of a maybe one area that we probably want to build on is that tangibility of like we need to build a prototype. That's where we we are essentially checking out to see if how something feels. Um, and I think we could maybe up the game a little bit more. And I find that critiquing and, and reviewing ideas is also somewhat more of a challenge. Creating them together has been less of a, a pain point. But, you know, the way that I like to look at design is I want to know what the, you know, what was the mission? What was the objective? You know, what are key results? Mm-hmm. And then I want to feel that product. I want to see the animation, the sequence and feel it in my hand. And you can somewhat do that. But it's a little bit easier when you can grab a coffee and sit around someone's phone and then talk through it. And that that little moment, that's something that I I miss and I'm hoping that we can get you know back to this year. Yeah. It's a kind of a it's a as you say, it's fine to review something on your own. Um but you know, it's it doesn't matter how senior you get, you always want the 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 input and the opinions of your team. You're not just gonna bulldoze like yeah. um based on what you see. Um kind of dictate the direction that it should go it should be a team decision uh and you're right having the ability to review those tangible things um together i think would be hugely beneficial if we could do that soon i think one of the points you touched on earlier was the the fact that a lot of your team is quite in the senior level in a senior position yeah. and if you had more junior members of the team, the ability to mentor those new members would be challenging. And I think I read, because everyone's speculating right now about what does return to work look like for not just design, but any industry. Yeah, naturally. And I read, I think I read something that the, the CEO of Goldman Sachs, he was like, as soon as it's, as soon as it's physically possible and safe to do so, we will be back in the office in person, hundred percent. And his 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 rationale for that was, we are not able to effectively mentor and grow our new recruits. You know, if you have very new members of the team who are just sat at home on their own, working on their you know their own little thing with their blinkers on, um, they're not going to be able to learn from those more seasoned members of the team. Um, and grow at their skills, you know, and I think that's definitely true. And I, th- I think a lot of us in a senior position who are like much more seasoned maybe think, oh, yeah, working from home long term will be will be fine. I quite like the flexibility, and I can balance my work with my my day to day to day life. Sure, from a personal point of view, um, it's definitely better, I'd say. But then, if you're mm-hmm. trying to grow and mentor a team um, and maintain a level of quality across the studio, um, you, again, 
I think you need the ability to uh, mentor and teach and and understand where the more junior members of the team need to grow. Um, otherwise, I think it'll be the, the growth will be stunted, unfortunately. Yeah, it's it, that is a really it's a really good debate for us to have, and you know, we, you know, Vodafone. I think we've made the decision to to revamp and change how we work moving forward. And the, the intention is to have much, much more flexibility, yeah. which may be something the region sort of like half and half, but they're revamping the, or we're exploring with these ideas of revamping the offices to now be much more like studio cultures where it's all about creating these natural like water cooler moments. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting. So on one hand, I think we were like, we've, we've seen data over the last year, individual performances up as an average of around like one and a half times, mm-hmm. which is a phenomenal value. But I also wonder, you know, as you were saying, like if you're bringing new people into that into that community, how are they performing outside of the average of the entire? Are they are they as high or are they low? Um, I'd love to um, probably like uh, there's a, a lovely chap I know called Richard Banfield um, who is a VP of Design Transformation at Envision, and I think I might have to message him on this topic because obviously their their stu- whole studio I think is entirely remote and always has been. And I'd love to know how they are and, and have been historically fostering um, and mentoring uh, individuals um, without that student environment. Maybe there's something we could we can kind of extract there. Yeah. Maybe we should get them on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's a gap. There is a, uh, a ability gap, I don't know what you call it, between working at home and being in person that needs to be resolved. Um, yeah. Because there's a, like, there's a, Another viewpoint that I've heard people say that if companies don't offer that flexibility, you're not going to be able to attract the talent because the people who have, you know, real, genuine, um, you know, God-given talent can kind of pick and choose where, where they want to work. So to not allow that flexibility might mean that they're going to perhaps attract substandard, substandard talent yeah um so it's, yeah it's an interesting topic and it's it's something that we're not gonna we're not gonna resolve in this podcast but it's no it's true. something that is some definitely um front of everyone's mind right now yeah that's very true i mean it's like there's there's tons of pros to it but i guess we, we've never been in this situation before um you know i'm i was reflecting this the other day with uh with my wife you know i was, you know, if we were even sort of 10, 15 years ago in this situation had hit us, I would hate to think the, the situation that our economies and our livelihoods would be in because, you know, we didn't have Figma, we didn't have Miro. Skype was kind of okay, but I mean, it's just, it's not what it what we have now. Yeah. Um, so if it's probably hit us, probably to say at the best time that it could have done to history to date, but... I think, I mean, the, I think the key thing, and the Goldman Sachs one's an interesting one. We've got to learn how to, in, like, like any design change, right, learn about the good things that we had before, but also identify and recognize the problem spaces of working. And particularly, and I think it's probably less so if you're in someone like San Fran and New York, or even within like uh, North or South London. But, you know, within the UK, one of the challenges we have is that all of the regional talents are being poured into one city, which is, very difficult to get to and then as soon as people sort of like age out which is like i mean like start to get married or have kids typically a large portion of move to the suburbs and then into the home counties around london mm. 
And then you're losing, you know, three to four hours a day in commuting, which kills people's ability to actually be as creative and productive. So it's like, what's actually, where's the value exchange? So striking a balance for, I think particularly for London-based organizations or global ones like we are at Vodafone, um, will be really interesting, particularly if we can tap into talent, you know, even in the UK and like, you know, Scotland, uh, you know, Newcastle, Bristol, Cornwall. It'd be amazing to see what, what we can pull out without having people to necessarily come in five days a week. What if they came in like once, twice a week? Yeah. Uh, three times a week would be interesting. But yeah, we're not going to resolve it, but it's, no. <laughs> it's a great question. It's the same here. It's like people who work at the Apples and Googles of the world down in the South Bay here in the Bay Area, a lot of them live in San Francisco because they don't want to be disconnected from that city vibe. Um, so their commute ends up being, you know, sometimes four hours a day because during each of the rush hour, that's a two-hour bus ride um, down the 101 often. It can be quicker, like you can get down there in about 30 minutes if you wanted to uh, at non-peak hours, but people lose a lot of time on the bus and they're expected to actually work on the bus and, you know, really how much, how much impact are you going to have by um, sitting there and working on a, in a cramped bus seat? It's... Um, I wouldn't have thought that effective. I haven't experienced it myself, but um, it's something that uh, I don't think that that commute would be amicable to getting a lot of work done on a bus, for sure. Yeah, it's, an, it's a really interesting one. I wonder how we can do it. The other thing that's really, um, there's another element to that is what happens when you've got uh, studios or fractions of studios in different locations. So I've got, my team is partly based in London, obviously we're working at home for now and then partly based in Berlin. Mm. So I'm curious to see when we go back to a more normal world, is, is the current situation actually a more equal environment where everyone's in the same boat, say everyone's online. And then would you end up in a situation where some conversations might feel more one-sided because there's a larger number in one studio than the other on different days, which is something I've seen, you know, in other, other organizations. So a whole world for us to unpack in the future around this. Absolutely. Yeah. To be continued, I guess. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, like looping, looping way back round to um, the design director role, mm -hmm. um, and you know, maintaining. You know, I totally agreed with what you're saying, and very much how I'm, I treat my role and my career. I feel like if you're a designer, you're a designer. You want to stay working on those problems and work, but you know, obviously scaling up and working in a slightly different way as you climb the career ladder. I found in a number of organizations that management is very much management as opposed to leadership you know a designer being great what they do and then figuring out how to work and bring other people with that from your perspective and i've probably got very strong opinions on this how important is it for for you as a design director to see within your own career and in other organizations the leadership team be you know somewhat experts of the craft versus a, a manager of people who know somewhat a little around a given topic? I, I personally think that it's important for anybody who's leading a creative team to be able to uh, exercise the craft and kind of lead by also doing and, and executing and mentoring by doing. Um, mm. And if you think about it in terms of, you know, you're working on it with a team, some of whom are more junior than you, less, less experienced, 
are looking to hone their skills and their craft. They're looking to somebody to look up to and aspire to be in the future. And without that level of craft knowledge of craft skill, they just, they have, um, I wouldn't say nothing to aim towards. I wouldn't put like Mm. uh, a tribute to myself, to all of our teams, (laughs) junior team's aspirations (laughs) by any stretch, um, anything, but I'd say, Um, but you know, just when it comes to learning about, how to interact with a client and how to communicate with clients depending on um, their job function, whether you're presenting to like an executive or whether you're actually presenting to a designer themselves, that conversation is very different. Equally, if you're presenting to marketing, you'll, you'll present ideas and, and communicate those ideas in a, in a slightly different way to, to make the conversation um, more fruitful. Um, so it's, it's definitely, I, I think it's imperative that the leadership don't just, you know, um, review ideas, tell people what to do and, and, and how you think you should do it. Um, it, it's not, e- and I also think that you shouldn't lead from the perspective of, I know best, um, because I've got all of these years experience and, um, and so, and so my perspective is, is the one that we're going to p- pursue. Um, and again, kind of speaking back to Gardi's podcast and saying that the, there's a very egalitarian culture in, in New Deal, um, similar in Fuse Project. It's, it's a design democracy where it doesn't matter who has the best idea, any idea can win, um, whether you're an intern or whether you're a director. It's really about... Um, the the quality of the idea and and whether or not we're able to make the idea feasible um so and i I think giving younger designers and and younger talent the the opportunity to be able to voice and 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 develop their own ideas and, and drive their own ideas through the process will the more and more they do that give them the the confidence and the know-how to be able to drive them through. And I think that's something that earlier in my career helped me gain the confidence that the ideas that I had and the approach that I had and my, my kind of design ethos was um, correct and it kind of validated it. I worked at a place called Therefore, a really great consultancy. They worked for brands like Samsonite and... Um, sort of the tom tom the guys who did all of the the satellite navigation devices and and wearable watches and um they gave me a lot of space to be able to grow as a designer and 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 try things out and and kind of develop my own aesthetic and approach and philosophy as a designer and i think without that and without them giving me the the space to be able to do that, I probably wouldn't have, have developed the, 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 the kind of design muscles that I have now because I kind of, I flexed them mm. over, you know, the course of many, many projects and um, was allowed to, given a lot of autonomy to be able to do that. Um, and yeah, without that, I don't think I would have, have grown into the designer that I am today. 
I don't know if you had a similar yeah, experience. I, think, um, I have, yeah. It's, um, I think the thing that I've probably missed in most roles, and I'm sure people tweet me and whatever later and say they disagree, but I, I felt there was a lack of this um, design figurehead that I could learn and, and learn from and look up to. And I think that gave me, you know, on one side, I was like, who am I going to ask these questions from? How do I find this information? So it probably propelled me to experiment and read and listen to tons of podcasts and TED Talks and everything else under the sun to learn about the craft. I kind of wish I'd had that that mentor in, earlier in my career. And I've met a couple of people along the way that have somewhat been there, one of which is now uh, working in my team, lovely guy called Sunit Patel. Um, he was the lead on a project for FIFA years ago and when, I, when I was working with him when I was... I don't know, probably two or three years into my career. Um, and we, we collaborate today, which is, which is incredible. But that gap for most of my roles probably propel me to, to work harder and push more of my own perspectives. Mm. Um, and it's something I talk about with, with my team and I have done over the last couple of years. Um, I'm always curious to try and figure out how do we create an environment where we can give the right kind of freedom so people can grow and push their own ideas at the same time, give just the right amount of direction uh, that they know they're going towards the right, the right thing. Um, and, and these are kind of questions I'm not sure we can 100% answer um, solidly, but flipping this you know, back around, how do we, from your point of view, and you know, I'll probably give my thoughts on it as well, how do we create an egalitarian design community where we can enable individuals to contribute and share ideas and you know it doesn't matter if they're a director or a junior if it's the best idea it goes forward how do we do that at the same time as somebody's got to make a decision on what is quote unquote the best idea yeah so what what, what does that what does that balance look like for for you and your team i think there's um si- similar to the space and the time that i was given kind of uh as i developed as a designer it was I think we give the team, again, the space and the time to be able to think about things. But then there's a point, there are kind of gating points in time where you get together and you you review all of your ideas and we discuss what's good and what's bad and, and what could be built upon. And I think it's important, again, as a leader to not just say, no, we're not going to do this idea. Let's just park that one for now. And we're just going to do this one. It's helping the team understand why that decision-making is being, is, is happening and why a certain idea maybe doesn't ladder up to the, um, the goals of the projects or the priorities of the projects. Whereas sometimes I think probably from the point of view of efficiency, ideas just get thrown away, but, Sometimes people might not understand exactly why, like what's the thought process that somebody is going through to be able to make that decision and say that we're not going to pursue that, let's pursue this. It's important to bring people along with that um, and not just make decisions from the point of view as well. I'm the executive decision maker, so I'm going to make this call now and this is the direction we're going to go forward. You've got to bring the entire team with you, otherwise you're not going to get everybody behind it. You've all got an end goal to be able to get to, whether it's a, 
a client share out or a presentation and you've got to get everybody behind that common goal we all have a common goal to be able to get there so without knowing the whys behind why we're going in a certain direction i think it would be hard yeah. for me as a designer in that position to really kind of be motivated and get behind it and enthusiastic about it because otherwise i'm just not i, I can't get behind it you know um so for me that's important and i i and and that's something which i think will help to build more of an egalitarian and and democratic design culture for sure mm-hmm. um so it's something we try and exercise at fuse on a daily basis where we can um sometimes projects are so fast paced and aggressive that often it's just mm-hmm. sometimes there is a communication gap i would have thought um with that decision making and and how it gets done because it's just like okay we've got a we've got a week we've got a couple of days you know depending on how how long it is and we've just got to move forward let's do this this and this and the team can you know reach out and if they don't understand the why's of why we're going we're we're going in a certain direction but hopefully everybody is un, like has a common understanding and a mutual understanding of why we're going in that direction right yeah yeah absolutely so it, am i right in saying it what i'm hearing is it's around given a sense of a sense of agency freedom to to explore ideas mm-hmm. but the key thing here around i think you're kind of tapping into around design leadership and and good direction setting is clarifying really the why behind a certain project or a decision Mm -hmm. so when you have to get to a point of critiquing or reviewing or saying yes or or no through whatever mechanisms people understand why is that is that essentially what allows it to go from the exec making a i'm just going to make a decision on this versus a okay we've worked through the problem here together we understand the objectives because of x y and z we can now make a call that we feel more comfortable exactly with. yeah it's all laddering up to something and i think another part of our process that is really important at fuse is the 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 upfront kind of opportunity definition and experience definition that we do on a lot of programs even before we put pencil to paper and start actually sketching or building ideas it's defining what the opportunity is what the ideal experience should be within a, a given context because context is is really mm-hmm. everything you know based on the the target user, the user needs, and the unmet challenges. And then that trickles into what features a, a product should have. Like, And I think of the, the kids' watch that we designed together for Vodafone yeah. and um, how before we even started designing the product itself, we kind of knew the baseline features that needed to be built into this, like the, the help button um to yeah. be able to call your kids and uh, sorry for the kids to be able to call their parents in in times of need um and also the ability to kind of customize and update the watch as the child grows because it's for the age group of 4 to 11 years old and if you have exactly the same watch during that entire time span like the the tastes and the preferences kind of change over time so we had all of those um features that we knew that we needed to build in 
And then that kind of fed into what, what the enabling technology was required to be able to do that. You know, so we had a set of features, a set of enabling technology. What are the high level priorities of, uh, from a design point of view? You know, we want it to be playful, but not like, look like a toy. We wanted it to be yeah. intuitive and super easy to use, those kinds of things. So we had those, while we were sketching ideas, it was, we had all of those priorities and the hit list of things that we needed to build into those designs written on on the wall so as every time we sketch something we'd like look at it and go oh does this hit on all of those things um so that is a really important tool for us to be able to assess our ideas and decide whether or not they're the right direction to go so it's as you say it's not just a well i'm the executive decision maker this is what i think and therefore we're going to go with this it's more of a we've aligned as a team and with the client previously that these are our goals and priorities does it ladder up to it yes no we're either going to move forward with it or we're not going to move forward with it or here's how we can improve on it based on these priorities that we've defined and listed out at the beginning of the project you know yeah totally I, I couldn't agree more i mean it's again something i've seen in digital side there seems to be a little bit and again not for companies not for teams there seems to be a somewhat lack of understanding about the importance of establishing a brief with the client or with whoever the stakeholders are in an organization i think some something probably in the lines of in software companies, there's probably a lack of knowledge and experience of working with digital, uh, sorry, with physical design. Um, and there are some processes and uh, arguably ceremonies that um, are geared away from understanding that we need to start with something in order to evaluate it. Um, and I think because digital is so flexible in a sense, like it's gonna cost a lot of money to build some software, but you can fix it really quickly. But I think there's something about the line in the sand. Once we've once we've gone uh, to the manufacturer and we've we've sourced the components and we've tooled up, and we're gonna we're gonna go and put put you know what ten thousand units through this facility, you've got to be confident that you've you've hit the brief and you know that it's a good product because there is no going back and, and changing at that point for a considerable period of time and a considerable lump of money. Yeah, because physical product design. The timelines for those versus, as you say, for digital design, you know, it's it's a year, year and a half, sometimes two years minimum from the start yeah. of a project when it actually hits the market. And luckily, because you have all of that time, you have the ability to prototype and um, test the ideas on multiple occasions to ensure that whatever you've whatever you've designed is is usable and and um hits on all of the needs um that you had intended and the design intent um mm. and i guess similarly to digital design you obviously have the the dev side of things where you have to make sure that your design works with um whatever the back end software is yeah. we we have to reconcile our design intent with a very physical you know, technical and mechanical constraints. <laughs> and often those mechanical and technical constraints are predefined before they even thought about the user. Yeah. And yeah. that's always so back to front. Like you, 
why design how something like all of the features and how something works and the mechanics of it before you've even understood what the user experience should be where should all of the you know the the interaction points be and and how does it look and feel um it's it's always a little bit um demotivating when you're sort of just presented with a a set of internals and you're like they're like right make this make this usable make this um <laughs> something that will be appealing to the user and you know th there's always projects like that where people throw um th those kinds of um constraints at you and you know you make the best of the situation but the really the best projects that we work on are those where we have the ability to influence that from the very beginning so as i was saying before like yeah. with all of the enabling technology that you want to leverage to um develop a design let's define that and sort of understand the basic architecture which we think is going to be beneficial from a user point of view before we start building something you know like what are the size constraints how thick does it need to be um yeah you know what are the, what's the threshold with the size of this thing before the user is just not going to accept it and decide that you know they're going to go with another brand or a you know another product so um we often have to approach it from different ends of the spectrum um but the best results always come from when you can work before like any technical constraints have been developed for sure i don't know how you feel about it from a software point of view and and how back to front that sometimes can be and how flexible it can be yeah it varies a lot right and it's somewhat somewhat similar there are i think the companies that stand apart you know from your side you know working working with clients at fuse and what we're doing at vodafone smart tech as well is we're starting with the customer first and then finding a technical solution to solve their need mm -hmm. whereas there are a substantial amount of companies i think still today starting with we've got a technology and what the heck are we going to do with it how do we sell it to someone yeah. And I think it's somewhat the sort of like stereotypical Delton. I'm sure this is not entirely true, but it's a bit like when people look at Apple and uh, Microsoft and Jobs versus Gates. Is the 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 idea of Jobs is that he's starting with I want to build something that's really effing cool for for the audience. What can we put put into it to make make this vision real? Mm -hmm. Whereas I think if you're a true technologist, which is perhaps more to where where Gates is, and I apologise if if I've misinterpreted his mindset on things and his companies. Um, but it feels more like I, I'm fascinated so much with the technology. How do we use, how do we then package this and, and sell it to someone? And, you know, obviously, arguably, Apple very, very successful. Microsoft very, very successful. But if I was to ask anyone on the street, probably today, and probably the same thing 10, 15 years ago, what do you prefer using? between Microsoft software and Apple software, particularly if you're a designer, I've never heard anyone go, yeah, I love Microsoft. It's, like, it's kind of okay, right? It, you know, I can do a spreadsheet. Serves a, it pick serves up, a purpose. Pick up an Apple product. Yeah, just. But when you pick up a, an Apple product, you're like, oh, this thing has just got something about it. It's kind of sexy. It's kind of cool. Uh, they've actually considered the typefaces. It's not just... Do you remember when... The, when um, like Windows 97 and everything probably up until the last five years was lines of code when you, when you start up. Yep. Apple was the symbol and that 
very simple key on the keyboard. It's arguably completely trivial and doesn't offer any value. And yet that's the beginning of your emotional relationship with that brand and that product. Uh, that was a real game changer. Yeah, they, they so, thought uh, about the user for once um, yeah. and decomplicated uh, the experience of using a computer. I remember when we had to build our own computers, uh, you know, <laughs> if you wanted one, like my dad would be there with, you know, CPUs and, 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 uh, and, you know, memory chips spread out on the floor, just kind of, you know, building it and slotting it into the casing. And I used to think, oh, that just seems like a bit of a faff to me, but Apple have, have, uh, yeah, helped a user like make the experience of using technology in general, just, um, much more pleasant from a user perspective. And I think they have influenced business and technology, you know, for the last 10, 15, 20 years. We have so many clients or not necessarily at Fuse, but people who come to us and say, we want you to design this for us, um, but we want it to be like a little bit like the, I remember someone said, we designed a vacuum cleaner once at 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 a consultancy I used to work at. And it was, we want you to design this vacuum cleaner as if, you know, it was, it's the iPod of the vacuum cleaner world. <laughs> right. Yeah. And you're like, well, <laughs> what, like, okay, <laughs> um, fine. And I, I think, you know, people like Dyson have done a, a good job of it, but they come at it That's from a, a very different perspective. And, and as a company, they are actually quite kind of mechanical. Um, engineering driven company obviously you know very true very um focused on the user as well to be fair to them um but yeah it's it's funny how companies always they always it's like okay they're referencing apple again like um change the record (laughs) (laughs) i know i think gaddy mentioned this before about the proliferation of the of the squircorn yeah um so much of you know industrial design has has geared so much towards this now synonymous shape with apple yeah um that we're, we're starting to lose the a creative agency that that i think he feels very passionate about. i'm sure you and i also would agree with it's nice to have a product that feels unique and has character as opposed to yes something that is ergonomically very valuable but if it looks it looks like a an apple product then have we done a great job as a design designer with that brief possibly possibly maybe not, not. and there's a yeah. there's a, some something one of my mentors told me a while back but there he said and it stuck in my mind that there is a very fine line between simplicity and soullessness and finding that balance yes. is is the sweet spot and that what, what that's what really makes good design that's a very good line. It's a good quote. That's a very good perspective. <laughs> it's a very good quote. I think this is something that we struggle with. Um, yeah, on the digital side, again, is there is somewhat the same, you know, Apple effect, right? We've obviously got a lot of very standardized paradigms and solutions across across um, iOS and, and web, and particularly, you know, the guys uh, behind Material Design at, at Google have done a phenomenal job at translating and, and building something that works very well. But as a consequence, there is also a lot less risk and a lot less diversity um, 
within many companies from e-commerce or m-commerce if you're on mobile i suppose um through to social media where there's you could probably find 10 products that were well recognized and find a million products that look like carbon copies of those and partly i think there's a little bit of design sensibility missing from a number of organizations and partly there are a large number of exec teams who are not willing to take the risk on something a little bit more unique mm -hmm. and similar to what we're seeing with industrial design the same thing has happened with software where there is you know there's a few great products out there but there's a lot of products that look exactly the same as each other for me and maybe more of a creator than it is a consumer's mindset it, it's boring it's dull and I just wish someone would punctuate that and say, screw it, we're going to do something completely new here. Yeah, and I, I, I like to think or have faith in the user that they are savvy enough that they recognize those copycats and, and mm -hmm. see the compromises which have been made. You know, you can't copy Apple um, and maintain the same level of quality as Apple. They're unique in that they have complete unmitigating control over every little detail of their physical and digital offering you know down they design their own chips they does they develop their own screens or you know cpus or ic chips in all of their in their products and they're able to you know they've got tens of years more than that of time and experience developing those and optimizing those to fit within um within their products and that's why the apple watch is you know it's it's as thin and as sleek and as 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 sexy as it is because everything that they fitted in there has been hewn and optimized to such a an obsessive level um that they're able to mm. develop a product like they have today and that to me is is inspiring having that level of of commitment to um developing in such detail products like that talking of projects yeah um you've worked on a lot of very very cool products over the last you know what six 15 16 years in industry mm -hmm. yep yeah what would be one or two projects that would be a, a a highlight for you that we could maybe talk a little around I I really uh, of the projects which are kind of public, you know, there's a, a lot of projects that I have a love of that I I've done, but some of some of which are, are public, some of which are not public for for numerous reasons. Um, mm. But I would actually say, and this isn't just because I'm talking to you and you worked at Hive and um, and we worked together on the suite of of IoT products for. Uh, the connected home i yeah. that was that was a highlight for me i think because we were working hive was a kind of what would you describe it as a sister company to british gas or kind of a, a skunk works agency almost yeah i think it depends who you ask uh we were probably the somewhat rebel teenage child yeah kicking down some doors and doing things a little bit differently mum and dad were perhaps a little bit more conservative um, but yeah, you know, that 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 relationship's obviously evolved. But yes, yeah. So Hive, yeah, Smart Home, and yeah, yeah, we were a little bit more on the on the edge there. And I, I think the reason I liked it was because of that. There was an agility to um, the company to to Hive, and also 
credit to Tom's leadership as well, that enabled us to do, within the constraints that we had, some pretty uncompromising product experiences and actually kind of helped to mm-hmm. move the category forward and help to redefine those categories. And those are the projects which really interest me, the ones where you're not just working on another, I don't know, smartphone for the sake of of uh, designing another smartphone or like who needs another, you know, iPod speaker, you know? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, there, was a t- there was a time in history when everybody was doing their own iPod speakers. I remember. <laughs> Those projects which either help to define a category or I think redefine a category as I think we did with Hive um, are the most interesting and and kind of gratifying and rewarding from from my perspective. And I actually only started working with Hive after the development of the thermostat. That was kind of the the first hero product that Fuse worked with with Tom and Hive on. And then I joined the team when we started working on the the camera. I think right at the beginning it was it was again as we I said before, it's one of those projects where there was no technology which had been developed for this solution yet so we had entirely free reign to be able to define what the experience should be what the the form factor should be what the ergonomics should be what the um the physical user interface should be on the product and it was it was great and as we went through the process of developing it once we got beyond initial concept um and it it was sometimes you expect projects to be diluted or the materials that you originally envisaged to be changed because of cost constraints or um availability supply chain that kind of thing but it was one of those projects where uh it, it i wouldn't say it was a a boulevard of unbroken green lights necessarily but it almost was um and we got to the end of the process and we shipped it and you know we got we got the the final kind of production sample and i just remember thinking like looking back at the original renders that we we developed for it and they were exactly the same like there's there wasn't much in it and that often is pretty that's pretty rare and it was such a great, a great product. So I, I joined, I think, as that was probably in its latter stages. Yeah. But I thought it was just such an inspiring thing. You know, you guys had come up with this beautiful concept. You'd work with, you know, Tom and, and Jess and, and Najiba. And you'd, you'd push this thing through. And it was just such an incredible quality. I mean, I remember picking it up for the first time thinking, this thing has got real class. It's got a, a really stable weight to it. You'd invested in the materials, figuring it out. I remember looking at the un- only the only things that designers probably think about with some obsession, but like picking that up and look at the plate and how clean the cable plugs in and would they wrap around underneath that? Uh, like what what was it? Spun aluminium? The plate? Do you remember? It was a cast. It was cast. I think it was yeah, cast aluminium. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful. And then I think the the uh, the actual arm, the design of the arm was uh, how do you say it? Like inspired? Like it was absolutely gorgeous um but i remember someone kind of talking about the technical elements of that it was quite a complicated engineering solution to be able to get that that shape it was a complicated 
it was actually a complicated, it sounds complicated, but it was actually pretty simple. That arm that has been formed into like that leaf like um, structure, really thin and nice, and it comes up and like magnetically connects to that tube. That, uh, sorry, the, to the cube. That was actually made out of a, a single tube of aluminium that was then had was then cut into it and then put into a jig and formed into that shape. So it started itself out its life of just a, a stock piece of tube, right? And oh. just through like one or two really simple processes and a couple of secondary machining processes just to like clean up the edges and stuff, um, created such a, a beautiful shape. Um, mm. so, and, you know, I'm sure there was a point, I think in the process when, um, the factory was suggesting that we make it out of plastic because, you know, it'll be cheaper and, you know, your margins will be better, but Tom being Tom, like he pushed yeah. for, for excellence. Cause he knew that that was just a really important integral part of the design and something which was really going to make or break it from a user's perspective. And, and elevate the perception of premiumness. So, I mean, and yeah. Um, and it wasn't just the shape that was complicated about that. As you say, the cable plugged into the base and then the power cable actually fed up and through that. Um, that was it, right? The construction of the electronics was actually, it was quite outstanding, really, the way it was built. Yeah. Um, so all the power connections fed up through that metal uh, leaf-like structure, the sculpture. And then via some little contact points would magnetically snap to the tube as it snapped on there. And again, like that magnet with the cube snapping onto the, the base was not always the direction it could have gone. There was a point when, you know, it could have just been this clunky snap fit kind of yeah. horrible user experience. We were like, oh God, please don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> this is why it needs to be a magnet. This is why. It's, it, it is going to be important for the user experience that we maintain this feature. Um, and, that, and I think I learned from that, like any project that we're on, when you're working with people who maybe aren't as design literate or have design and experience perhaps at the top of their mind, they're more thinking about how do I just get this done? How do I, get, how do I value engineer this? to the point where you know it meets the cost target that the client is is telling me to hit um but on a daily basis communicating that philosophy of the why's behind why you're doing something and why it's important to the user why it's important to the business um is super important to be able to get to an end result which is is desirable and successful because um, if you're not, and if you don't continue to assert those, that philosophy and those goals and those priorities from a design perspective, they obviously have their own priorities. And, you know, whether you're a mechanical engineer, or electrical engineer, or in marketing, or, you know, the, the business side of things, it's, it's a tricky balance. But so long as you are doing your best to be able to speak up and maintain a, a high level of design integrity you know that you've done all that you can to be able to maintain that, maintain, maintain the, the design intent to, to the best yeah. quality possible. Because no one else is going to speak up for you. If you don't speak up and say, no, this is how it's meant to be and this is why, 
then you kind of you lose the value that you originally instilled into it in the first place no absolutely i think um i remember i'm sure this is an eve's quote and you you can correct me <laughs> if i'm wrong but i'm sure a, a while ago he described um the quality of design about the deep the level that you care about a product so either you care a degree everything is designed but you either care enough and it's kind of okay or you care a lot and the product is phenomenal and i've gotten gosh knows how long ago that was but i always remember taking that and going that's the most inspiring simpler simple description of why design is important and what it means to be a designer that we need to carry through and I think what you know, what you demonstrated with that particular product was the level of care that you and Tom and Jess and even both studios put into it completely worked. And it wasn't about the margins; it was about what is the quality, how is the user going to feel when they pick up this product, and how do we, you know, in many ways, you broke the mold on the category because the product experience and the quality of the build was so high. I think it helped push, um, you know, the bar up, not just for the consumer, but amongst the competition. Yeah. But because you cared about, about what you were doing. Yeah. And, and I think that um, philosophy of, of quality started right at the very beginning when we just started to define what the design approach and principles that the design needs to ladder up to should be. And one of the things we noticed across the whole category was these products, you know, especially a camera, these connected smart home cameras, they just like, they look like pieces of technology. They look like little eyeballs that sort of sit in the corner of your room. And there's a bit of a stigma behind, you know, people watching you in your home. Is it really safe? Is there a, like, there's definitely a, a privacy thing going on. And one of the philosophies that we had behind the camera was we didn't want it to look like an eyeball. We didn't kind of didn't want it to look like a, a camera. We wanted to, it to look like something that fits within the home. And it's something which is, you know, speaks to the home environment and, and is inspired by homewares rather than just it being a piece of white or black plastic that, you know, sits on the mantelpiece and kind of looks ugly. Um, and that was the whole rationale behind using one real metal because we wanted it to have that level of quality and the feeling of it being almost ornamental um, when it's sat, mm. you know, within your home. And then the selection of colors for the arm, whether it's, you know, it had, one of them had a champagne base and then the other a piece of metal, the other one was kind of like a, a copper finish. So it was, it was very much driven by what people would want in their home from a lifestyle point of view. And that all that that philosophy of quality and um, and attention to what the user is expecting, you know, went through the entire process right to through to mass mass production. Um, so yeah, I look I look back very fondly at all all stages of that pro that that program for sure. And I feel like again the work we've done at Vodafone as well. It was a, it was a similar engagement that we had when we developed the Kids Watch with yourself and Tom and, and Jess. Um, and that's why we love working with you guys. It's, it's always a real pleasure. We're going to see uh, a lot of little love heart emojis from Tom I'm sure so. on social. I hope you're listening, Tom. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, right now, moving moving into a probably into like the final chapter of of the talk. Looking ahead, what do you feel could be the next great challenge or opportunity for designers to invest their time and efforts into? Um, I think sustainability is a huge conversation right now and being more mindful of the products that we're putting out there the purpose behind them do we really need them and are we approaching these solutions from a mindset of uh, sustainability the circular economy how do we change Mm. the mindset from a linear the the linear uh, economy of we buy something we use it we throw it away it ends up in landfill and it pollutes our earth and our waters and now we're drinking you know we're drinking plastic basically now yeah uh which is is frightening um and how how can we influence business to be be more sustainable even before they start developing products um how can we think of things more strategically before we get tactical about actually designing a product itself you know yeah um there's only so much you can do when you're on a development timeline and you're actually in the process of developing a product and that just you know comes down to what materials can we select what what are the can we use bioplastics can we use um recycled plastics um first second third generation uh, recycled plastics those are uh, well and then also you know how do we reduce material usage as well that's there are some there are some things that we can influence but then even even if you're using plastics for let's say a an a piece of electronics which are in themselves sustainable more sustainable in that they were they've been given mm. a second life if they are assembled with a composite of electronics and lots of different other materials they inherently then become unrecyclable and that's where it ends for them and then that's where it it ends up you know landing in landfill somewhere and often from an electronics perspective at least it's not even the plastic enclosures themselves which are the most polluting parts it's it can be the electronics within them which have lead nitrates all kinds of mercury all kinds of toxic materials which if they're not managed in a certain way or um you know um prevented from just re-entering into our like either food system or you know soil system over time that it's you know the earth is going to get more and more polluted so that's kind of frightening so i think we need to do more to help to define what companies can do um from a from a sustainability point of view so as they can identify um where areas of their group business need to evolve or develop and focus on those areas before they get into like a product development cycle so as they can you know have that long-term mindset of of being sustainable 
it's it's so yeah. so important we could, we so as a from a user perspective and i think i heard this on a I, I watched this on a show earlier a couple of weeks ago um there's only so much we can do from a an individual user to influence sustainability recycling seems to be the only tool that we are given with individually to be able to to make a difference but the reality is 90% of what we send to be recycled isn't actually recycled because we don't have the infrastructure to be able to, to deal with it. Um, and I think business in general has um, rallied around the idea of recycling as if to say, well, we know what all these plastics are. There are seven categories of plastics. We put those little triangles on there. You know, pop it in your recycling bin uh, when you're done with it, and we'll make sure it gets um, fed back into the circular economy and, and reprocessed as something else. Yeah, that kind of and and that has created this abundance mentality in society, where people think, well, I can just consume as much as I want, and it'll be all be okay. That's something that is, um, I'm sure, for like many of us, is weighing very heavily on my mind at the moment. I know. We are very passionate about um, trying to work out ways that we can be more responsible and more deliberate with our choices as an as an organisation. Yeah, there's a number of innovations we need to make. One of one of those starts probably again with, as you're saying, like with the consumer, like building products that have the you know fewest material components and selecting the right materials is one thing. Mm-hmm. If we can select products that offer the greatest value. We know that whatever investment we make of materials and, and funds will arguably have a longer shelf life. So the value, value to, of the product itself is making that product more sustainable or certainly more responsible. That's probably a better word for it. And then in terms of our material selections and our supply chain, how do we then again select the right materials and make sure we're being ethical and responsible and you know, progressively so um, as we move forward? Again, what happens at the end of life how do we create products that can be repurposed and reused? Or, you know, the other end of the design challenge here is how do we keep finding new materials that are, you know, rooted in organics, organic matters? So actually, can we design up plastics altogether? If we were more honest and more open in, in, as, as, uh, as businesses and as a society around the constraints, could we set positive constraints as we would do in a design brief that make people more aware of? their choices and therefore they buy less but they buy perhaps the right thing and they keep that for a longer period um yeah it's a fascinating space to get into it is um and there's no easy solution i mean there's such an abundance of crap which is being produced out there (laughs) uh some of which it's just what you term beautiful landfill um often not beautiful at all actually um and yeah. I feel like there should be more legislation around, you know, and more more attention to what companies are producing and really what the value is um, to the world. You know, if it hasn't really got any any real value, like just don't produce it. You know, it's it every 
Well, exactly. Things are so economic, economically driven. Like they just want to produce something to be able to sell it and make make a a quick dime on yeah on the the the, the products that they're developing. Um, it's entirely the wrong temp- mentality, and it trickles into you know our own. It's it's not just uh, polluting the earth. It's starting to impact our health as well. Like with the water that we drink. Um, I know you just you worry constantly about microplastics and the impact that that's having on your body. Um, I also heard that so since two thousand and five, half of the plastic ever produced has been produced since then, which is a pretty staggering. What? No, yeah, it's a pretty staggering um, statement, but it's true. <sighs> so there has to be. I'm not under underplaying. The importance of plastic, I think plastic itself has, just in terms of our human experience, helped us to leap forward in terms of the things that we can do and the technology that we've developed. And there's been some incredible leaps that we've made. Um, But it's become such an abundant material and used in things which really have no value that we need to start taking more of a tap on that for sure. You know, and helping companies recognize that and build infra- infrastructure around, you know, how people can send back products at the end of life and then them able to right, yeah. repurpose them. Um, but again, like companies just don't have the infrastructure to be able to deal with that. But the real goal is just it's to reduce the gap between um, something being reusable, reusable and renewable and the further you you can bring those two sort of philosophies together then you get to like a net neutral um carbon footprint so that's that's the real goal for i think it should be for for any company out there yeah 100 percent. yeah so it's call call to arms every designer start changing and prodding every every business that you're touching It, it really is i mean it's that it's our responsibility as people who are putting things out there into the world to be able to, um, to influence those things and, and speak up when, when we have a certain belief. And now is that time to do it before things are, are really too late. 100%. Right, my final, final question. Um, for looking back at, at your, your career so far, um, and this is relating to designers trying to get into the field or, or starting out in their careers, what career advice might you give a younger version of yourself? I did some stuff when I was super um, junior. And, and what I did to be able to contact companies was maybe I wouldn't do that now. I, um, I actually cold called on companies and I would actually go to their studio, design studios with my portfolio, physical portfolio, and um, ask if there is somebody in the office who, you know, just have 10 minutes of their time to be able to talk to me and just for me to show them their work and for me to meet them, just say hello. That actually got me my first job. So I'm not discrediting that approach by any stretch. And I might not be here talking to you if I hadn't have done that. It probably was a little bit of a, I probably pissed off a couple of people by doing it. (laughs) Um, I'm not sure how I would feel if someone just rocked up at the studio and said, I'm here. Can does someone have ten minutes? I'd actually probably respect it, having been through it myself and done it myself, and thinking, okay, that's cool. He's got some guts. 
um, to be able to do that. But maybe it's not, you know, I don't want, it'd be hard to have 10 people every day turn up and ask for even just 10 minutes of your time. So maybe hopefully that doesn't happen. Great advice. Really great advice. Yeah. Hustle, work hard, prepare the portfolio. Yeah. Yeah, brilliant. Also just hard, yeah, hard work and hustle at the start of your career. Like that's almost half of what it's all about. <laughs> 12, 14 hour days, weekends. Yeah, not that get, I necessarily advocate that, but um, yeah, I would you've, agree. Got to, you've got to cut your teeth somewhere and there's always somebody out there working harder than you and you've got to stay ahead of the game. True, true. Yeah. Well, um, I think that's a great place to to leave the conversation. Will, thank you uh, for coming. Thanks, on. Ash. Really, really enjoyed it. And that's it for this episode. If you'd like to learn more, head over to designpodcast.co. And if you'd like to support us, please share the episode with friends and family or support us on patreon.com forward slash the design podcast. Take care, guys. 